Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 3 through 14, we're going to read. Beginning in verse 3, the Holy Scriptures read, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we ask that you would help us today as we come before you to worship you through the singing of song of your word and also through the preaching of your word, Father. We just ask that Christ would be our hope in life and death, that in the midst of temptation and trials and hardship that you would be our mighty fortress and we would hold you fast as our rock and our redeemer. And so, Father, we just ask that today that we would see a glimpse of the coming kingdom, that we would understand that this world is fading away quickly and all of our problems, all of our sin, all of our suffering and our tribulations will fade to black as Christ returns in glorious light and splendor and will be worthy of all praise. Help us to find rest in God alone amidst the world's temptations. As we just sang, when evil seeks to take a hold, let's, let us cling to our salvation. And so, Father, we know that life is a fleeting breath as we just sang. It's a sigh too brief to measure, but we praise you because Christ has crushed the curse of death. And because of that and that alone, we have hope this morning. Help us to live in resurrection hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. During World War II, the British government received intelligence warning of an impending bombing raid upon the English city called Coventry. However, after much consideration and deliberation, trying to figure out how to respond to this incoming threat, they ultimately decided not to warn the people of the city of Coventry because they were worried that if they evacuated the city, it would tip off the Germans that their code had been broken. And so the people of Coventry went along with their lives without any warning of the bombing that was soon to take place. However, one woman in the city of Coventry, a local school teacher named Bessie Bradnock, heard rumors that the Germans were planning an attack on the city. 
And so she began trying to convince as many of her neighbors and local authorities in that city to take action in order to protect the people. She warned, she pleaded, she begged. But in the end, most of the city would not listen. In fact, some of the people in the city dismissed her warnings as being just baseless rumors, conjecture, and others actually accused her of spreading unhelpful panic. However, that couldn't be further from the truth because on the night of November 14th at 7 o'clock p.m., panic did ensue, but not because of her warnings, but because her warnings were true for the German forces began their bombing raid, which continued into the early hours of the following morning. The following morning, the city was in complete and total ruins with over 500 people being killed in the bombings, which was one of the most severe civilian casualty attacks in the entire World War. And though Bessie's house was destroyed, Bessie, her family, and all those in the city who had listened to her warnings managed to escape the coming wrath of the Germans, and they escaped it with their lives. You know, Bessie's story is a tragic example of what can happen when we ignore serious warnings. And yet, so often it is the case that people do ignore serious warnings, even credible ones. I think of hurricanes that are coming, and what do people often do? Oh, I can write it out. I can bunker down. I can make it through just fine. Sometimes they take the warnings, but they don't take them seriously. But other times, they don't listen to them at all like the people of her city. And it's because they don't want them to be true. They don't want to be inconvenienced by the potential reality that those warnings are pointing to. I mean, after all, who likes the idea of an invading army bombing your city into oblivion, destroying everything you own, and leaving it in complete ruins? Not even the most extreme minimalist on the planet is going to sign up for that. And yet, when credible warnings come, we must face the reality of the warning, no matter how unpleasant it might be. Because if we don't, there can be serious life-changing consequences. And so with this in mind, we turn this morning to Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus in this passage is putting the world on alert. He's giving them a warning of the most serious of threats, and that threat is soon coming, which is the end of the world. It's a warning, then, that we must absolutely listen to and take seriously. For the consequences of not listening to this warning comes with the most devastating consequences of them all. One of the things that makes it so difficult uh, is how many times people have cried wolf about the end of the world. Right? Like in history, there's been so many people, date setters, who are saying, on this date, be ready, everything's going to end. For example, I think of the Millerites. These were a group of Christians who believed that the world would end on October 22nd, 1844. And this belief was based on the interpretation that they found in the prophecies of the Bible, largely taking numerology and all sorts of silly things like that. And so in response to this, many of their followers sold all their belongings, gave up their jobs in anticipation for the second coming of Christ. However, when October 22nd came and went without incident, this group was left disillusioned and many then abandoned their faith. I think of the Jehovah's Witnesses, these people who often knock on our doors and love to have conversations. I love it too. But in 1914, they predicted that the end of the world would come. 
However, spoiler alert, it didn't come in 1914, did it? For the end of the world did not happen. And so when this date passed without incident, this group had to sit down and revise things and come up with new predictions because, oh, we see where we went off, it was here. So they set a new date, and that date did not bring in the end of the world either. And so they set another date, and another date, and finally now I think they've finally given up date setting for the time being. This is called false prophecy. More recently, in 2012, many people believe that the Mayan calendar, you remember this? Everybody thought, hey, look, the Mayan calendar, it only goes this far, therefore that must be the end of the world. They never considered the fact that to write an infinite calendar would take quite a bit of time. And despite the lack of any concrete evidence to support this claim, many people around the world stocked up on supplies, they built bunkers, They prepared for what they thought would suddenly come upon them, which was the end of the world. But of course, yet again, the world did not end, and many people were left feeling foolish for having listened to this false warning. And so here we are today, face to face with another warning about the end of the world, and we have to decide if we're going to take it seriously or not. And if we're honest about it, even as Christians, though we do say we do take this seriously, we are often tempted not to take it seriously either by not telling other people about this end of the world which is coming very soon to a city near you, or by living as if it weren't true at all. We start to live for this world, to become hyper-focused on the things of life, whether that's money, family, career, you name it. But make no mistake, church, both of those responses will lead to devastation. And so this is our challenge here with Matthew 24. It's to avoid making the mistake that the people of Coventry did where they ignored a very serious and real warning. But we must also avoid the mistake others have made by listening to false warnings. So even though Jesus' warning here is true, we are surrounded by so many churches and so many Christians who are date setters, right? They do the same exact stuff. And so as we approach these two chapters, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, Let's do a really good effort here together to avoid both of these ditches, shall we? I think that'll be best. Now, with that said, in Matthew 24, Jesus is giving us a warning of the end of the world, and he's warning us what's going to happen. And this is important because not only does the end of the world mean judgment for all of the citizens of the world, but it also means enormous blessings for those who are citizens of the world to come. And we have to listen to his warning in order to be prepared for that. As we said last week, the Bible's warning on the end of the world, it's not there to scare us, it's there to what? Prepare us, right? It's not to terrify us, it's to get us ready. It's not there just trying to spread panic so we're all freaking out, not being able to do anything of any earthly good or heavenly good. No, it's there to actually help us avoid panic when we see the end drawing near. And so if we're going to avoid the panic that comes with Jesus' warning here at the end of the world, we need to know the true signs from the false signs, which are the kingdom is birthed through pain, persecution, perjury, and perseverance. If you remember how this conversation began with Jesus and his disciples, it began with his disciples asking Jesus, hey, what is going to happen at the end? 
right? Remember, they were walking along the temple grounds and the disciples were like, wow, look how great this is. Jesus is like, every stone will be ripped apart. The whole thing will be torn down. And as we know, that happened in 70 AD. However, this startling question is what led to that question where they said, in verse 3, I'll read it for us. Tell us then, when will these things be? Question 1. And question two, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? See, as we said two weeks ago, this account, this all of it discourse where Jesus is giving us instructions on the end of the world, it comes in three of the four Gospels. All right? And all of them kind of emphasize different things about that, but they're all telling us kind of the same thing. But if we look at them all together, we see Jesus actually answers three questions. He answers the two the disciples asked, but he also answers one they didn't ask. And in verse 6, what did Jesus tell us about two of the signs that won't be signs of the end being right at your doorstep? What were they? Verse 6, there are wars, rumors of wars, famines, and earthquakes. And think about this. Have we experienced wars, rumors of wars, famines, and earthquakes for the past 2,000 years? You better believe it. We just had a massive earthquake recently. Now, on one hand, we have these all the time, okay? And if you did the homework I gave you two weeks ago, with, you know, especially if you did the bonus homework and read all of the passages in the Bible that we gave on that, Revelation chapter 6, the entire book of Revelation, and there were several Old Testament passages that speak of the end of the age, you might have noticed that these basic events are talked about all throughout the Bible. But also, yes, they are going to happen, but at the same time, they're going to amp up. They're going to start happening in much more intensity as we approach the second coming of Christ. So this period where things are amping up, what, did, what is that called in the book of Daniel? 70th week, right? We looked at that two weeks ago. We looked at Daniel's 70th week, which that last week, which we're waiting for to happen, is seven years long, which is a period that is called the Great Tribulation. And so on one hand, these are not signs of the end of the age because we've always had them and we always will have them. But on the other hand, if you are in Daniel's 70th week, they are absolutely precursors to the end, which is why Jesus calls them here, what? Birth pangs, okay? They're not signs that the second coming is five minutes away, but they are precursors to the end. Now, birth pains to what, you might ask? I've been thinking a lot about this this last week, and here's what this is. It's birth pains to birth the new age. That's what that is. What is the new age? It's the kingdom age. It's the millennial reign of Jesus Christ where he will rule physically on earth, not just in our hearts, okay? Not just in heaven, sovereignly over the universe, but where Christ himself will come in the flesh, and gather his people to him to go into this new birthed kingdom, this new kingdom age. And can I just say, that is what we are living for, my friends. That is what our hope must be in as followers of Christ. And praise God, our hope is not our careers. Praise God, our hope is not our families. And praise God that our hope is not even Eagles Nest Church. Give me an amen on that one, right? Like, amen indeed. As Christians... What is our hope? It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ when he comes, our Lord and Savior. And the degree to which we see that coming reality is the degree to which we will be able to experience joy in this kingdom which is passing away. 
The reminder of the coming kingdom must be ever on our minds. It must be our heart's desire. Because as we said, this world is passing away. And when something passes away, does that ever usually come without pain? No. No. And if we forget this, boy, are we going to be in a world of trouble. If we forget that the kingdom is birthed through pain, just like every child birth out there, do you know what's going to happen? First off, if things are going well and we forget that pain is a part of the process, what's going to happen when pain shows up? We're going to struggle to not lose our hope. We're going to struggle to not become disillusioned, to not become crushed. And oh, how many times this happens to us simply because we get our eyes off of the coming kingdom. We start looking at the kingdom of this world. We start trying to build the kingdom here, right here and now. And is that going to work, church? No, it's not. As Christians, I'm not your priest, I'm your pastor. As Christians, we're all priests before God, right? Okay, which in a way makes you all my priest. So how about some confession here this morning to you? And I don't mind if you break confidence on this one. It is live streamed and recorded. So here's my confession. As I've studied Matthew 24 in these past several weeks, I've come to realize one major way that I struggle to not live with kingdom hope. I've come to realize one of the ways where I don't live with kingdom hope and how that not living for kingdom hope really does affect me in a negative way. And it's this. When things are going great, and they largely have these past three years, when we see new families coming, when we see numerous people being baptized and dedicating their lives to Christ nearly every summer, every summer at this point, I believe, I can easily allow that to become my hope. I can easily see people turning to Christ and becoming energized, whether for the first time or for a like a reassurance or just getting on fire for God. And I can make that my hope very, very easily. Because it's exciting, is it not? Of course it is. But I can easily make that my joy and even my confidence. But even in a church with so much to be joyful about, can I let you in on a little pastoral secret? There is still so much darkness. There is still so much pain, so much brokenness, and so much sin that if I am not careful, it can beat me down. It can wear me out very easily. It can and does often lead to disillusionment, disheartened, and devastated responses. And what I've painfully come to realize is how much this response of mine serves as an indicator of where my own heart is finding its joy and satisfaction. And the solution to this is the same solution to whatever it is that leads you to lose your joy and satisfaction in the coming kingdom. It's to remember that our hope is in the kingdom that is being birthed through pain and through suffering. In Matthew 13, Jesus compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. It's the parable of the mustard seed. And how does the mustard seed start? Very small. Very tiny. And he says there, he breaks the the, the illustration, the logicalness of it by saying it grows into a huge tree. Mustard seeds don't grow into massive trees, but that's what he says the kingdom will be like. And it wasn't until just yesterday as I was mulling over the final thoughts on this passage 
that I realize that this growth of the kingdom, which, belie- which begins as a tiny mustard seed, will eventually grow so large and then be birthed. And that's going to happen with pain and suffering. Think of, think of somebody who's pregnant. The baby starts small. It grows and grows and grows. And then it starts to get uncomfortable as the baby keeps growing and running out of space. And then eventually that pain increases and increases with labor pains and more pain and more pain until you know the end. It's just awful. So I've been told. <laughs> many, many times. And if we're going to endure hardship that is presently happening and is going to come, what do we need to hear, ladies, over and over and over again in the midst of that birthing process? Oh, no big deal. Lighten it up. It's not that bad. That's a good way to get punched, guys. What do we need to hear, ladies? Almost over. Keep going. You're almost there. Just a little while longer. The baby is coming and your joy will have arrived. And if we don't remind ourselves of this, if we start living expecting a perfect, pain-free pregnancy, you better believe when that pain shows up, you're going to be disillusioned and disheartened and why you ever committed to the process at all. If we expect a pain-free pregnancy, not only will that throw us for a whirl when the birth pains start, but when those hard contractions begin, we will not be prepared. And so we must remember that the kingdom is birthed through pain, but it's also birthed through persecution. Look at Matthew 24, verses 8 through 10 with me. Open your Bibles there if you have them. Beginning in verse 8, all these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And in verse 9, then, and it's, this is then, it's getting worse, okay? Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. In these verses, Jesus is talking about events that will occur, as we said before, during Daniel's 70th week, during the Great Tribulation. The latter half, I believe, is what is the Bible called? The Bible calls Jacob's trouble. And during this time, believers in King Jesus will be hunted down and murdered in droves, as we studied last week with Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And if you want to read the extended details of that, I would point you to sit down and read the entire book of Revelation as we gave us homework two weeks ago because in this, we see how this happens. In Revelation chapter 6, which is basically an expanded edition of Matthew chapter 24, like you put these side by side and read them through, it's, they're very similar. It's talking about the same things. But here's what it says. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, But when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now we've got a little bit of a dilemma here because on one hand, many in this church, we we believe that we will not be going through this, okay? But even if you don't, there's a lot of common truths here we can pull from 
and, and apply to our lives in order to increase our hope and to help us live better as we wait for the day when Christ returns. And praise God, we all agree, right? Jesus is coming. And on that day, our hope will be realized. We will, as Christians, no matter what you believe on the timing of Christ's return and what that looks like, we all believe together that Christians will go through tribulations. Maybe you don't believe Christians will go through the great tribulation. Maybe you do, but we all agree together that Christians are promised tribulation and persecution. And if you think tribulation only comes in the form of a sword, you are woefully mistaken. Woefully mistaken. Yes, it's certain and often does, but the truth is there are more Christians being martyred today than at any point in human history, and it's not even close. However, for many Christians, the reality is they will make it through their life, and many have, without even losing a hair on their head for the sake of the gospel. And yet, still, we can confidently agree with the Apostle Paul who said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be what? Persecuted. It's not a, it's not a possibility, it's a reality. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I want to avoid being cliche here and start calling everything and everything persecution. Not getting a good parking spot at church is not persecution, all right? Uh, being teased for wearing silly clothes is not persecution per se, okay? The truth is, you very well might have not gotten that job promotion, not because you're a Christian, because you're just not very talented at your job, okay? So we don't want to rush quickly into saying, hey, anything that's against me, that's, that's persecution, okay? Let's not do that. However, there are numerous ways that we can and will face persecution for faithfully following Christ. For instance, there's economic persecution. Okay, I was talking to a friend the other day. He's a pastor, and he's at a church who can't yet hire him full-time, and he's trying to make ends meet. He's trying to find a job where he can still focus on the ministry and also provide for his family, which is quite the challenge for him. But he was telling me how there's a lot of companies out there that he could probably get a decent job at, but he knows that these companies require things uh, that he can't do ethically as a Christian. And so he can't work there. Sometimes, um, oh, for example, let me give you an example of what he was saying. He was saying on these, he knows that these companies require pronoun identification and proper people's preferred pronoun uses even. And he's like, I can't be complicit with a lie. I can't work there. There's legal persecution. Christians may and have faced legal action or fines for refusing to participate in activities that go against their beliefs. We saw in Canada pastors who were arrested for refusing to forsake the assembling of the body. We see Christians who refuse to bake cakes um, because it goes against their deeply held beliefs. And though we haven't seen a ton of that quite yet, the reality is it's ramping up, is it not? Of course it is. And it's going to ramp up more and more and more. And finally, and I hadn't honestly really even thought about this one, at least not in this way, but... Christians are going to suffer spiritual persecution. Christians will face spiritual attacks from the enemy, such as doubt, fear, or discouragement. See, here's the thing. We live in a pretty like, comfy country compared to what some Christians are going through in China and the Middle East, aren't we? But does that mean everything is all roses? 
No, what do we face that they don't? How about materialism? Is that a challenge? Absolutely it is. It's absolutely a challenge. Another thing we'll face potentially is social persecution. Christians may face ridicule or exclusion from their community or their workplace for their beliefs, as I mentioned with my friend, and that's going to get worse as our culture continues down the road of godless insanity. And so if you want to live a godly life, it's not just the secular world that you're going to face persecution in, but the truth is, one of the main places I'm convinced that Christians will face persecution in non-persecuting areas is in the church. And we all have stories of that, don't we? We absolutely do. I think we could do a testimony hour and fill up the next several weeks at least with that. I know of a pastor who definitely can. And I'm not going to say his name because I've talked enough about myself already. But here's the thing. (laughs) We don't face prison and sword right now. Not really. Okay, we don't. But have you ever thought about the fact that we face something that Christians in other places don't? We face churches that are chock full of wheat and tares. This This is a problem across the American landscape. And it's, and it's better and worse in some degrees, depending on where you're at. But we face churches that have tares, that have goats. Yeah, sometimes sheep bite. Don't get me wrong. But sheep chomp, that ain't got nothing on a goat chomp. It's not even close. Those things can eat pop cans, according to some of the kids' books I read growing up. Okay? It hurts. And in a culture where it's easy to just add a little Jesus, to just show up like, oh, I'm going to get my spiritual fix on Sunday, Is that going to draw unbelievers? That's going to draw. In this country, it's going to because there's no persecution attached. You can show up. You can get your spiritual fix, especially in churches where their goal is to entertain goats. There's a lot of churches out there with the seeker approach where it's like, come on in, goats. We'll do what you want. What music do you want? What do you want me to preach? Whatever it takes, right? Is that going to cause problems for the true believers there? Of course it is. We live in a culture where it's easy to just add a little bit of Jesus to your life. But I'm convinced upon reading the scriptures, that is not Christianity. Christianity is take up your cross and follow me. Christianity is Jesus is Lord above all else. He's not our counselor, though he is a good counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. He's not just our friend, though he is a friend closer than a brother. At the core of Jesus' identity, who Jesus is for the Christian is our Lord and King. And we bow the knee before him and we surrender all to him. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. That is the, the, the heartbeat of a true Christian. We are surrounded by cultural Christians who aren't actually Christians, and they are going to do things that non-Christians do while pretending to be Christians. They're going to slander you. They're going to gossip about you. They are going to betray you. And they're going to do all that in the name of Jesus. But the truth is, they're doing it in the name of the evil one, and they don't even know it. And the reality is we don't always get the luxury of seeing the wheat and the tares sorted out because not only are, does Jesus command us to not try to do that, he says, you wait till the end. You, you either wait until they sort themselves out through unrepentant sin or through them just leaving. He says in First John, they went out from us because they were not of us for if they were of us, what would they have done? They would have remained with us. They would not have rejected Jesus as king. They would not have walked away from the body of Christ. 
And so we don't always get the luxury of seeing the wheat and the tares, the goat and the sheep sorted out, because we do not face the natural sorting mechanism of it, which is persecution. We must remember that persecution in any form is a part of the Christian life. As Jesus said in John 15, 20, he says this, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As a Christian, we must be prepared to face persecution no matter its form. And here, I'll just say this. To the degree that you are persecuted for Christ is the degree to which you are being faithful for him. Does that make sense? The degree to which you are faithfully following Christ is the degree to which you will be persecuted. And if you're not being persecuted, are you faithfully following Christ? No, you're not. We must be prepared to face persecution no matter its form. And if we aren't expecting pain and persecution as precursors to the birth of the kingdom, we're in for it. For the truth is, pain and persecution are birth pangs of the kingdom, which we experience in part now and will be experienced to an infinitely greater degree during the Great Tribulation. And another thing about that this is going to include is the perjury of the gospel, which leads us to our third point. The kingdom is birthed through pain, persecution, and third, perjury. Look at verses 11 through 12. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Here Jesus is telling us that in the second half of the Great Tribulation, rebellion against God is going to amp up drastically. And one part of this is the sheer amount of false Christ or antichrist who are going to come claiming to be Christ as Jesus warned us of in Matthew 24 back in verse 5. He said, remember, many are going to come claiming to be the Christ. Don't listen, right? If somebody comes claiming to be the returning Jesus, as many have, you don't need to be told that. And if they're telling you that, you know it's not true. Because remember the illustration we looked at? If a nuclear bomb goes off in your front yard and somebody comes up and like, hey, a nuclear bomb just, nuclear bomb, let's say, right? Nuclear bomb just went off in your front yard. Do you even need to go look? No. You don't. Because when Christ returns, it's going to be lightning from across the sky. It's going to be so dramatic. There will be no questions at all that Christ has come. And until that happens, there will be many false prophets who will arise and lead people astray. And in Revelation 13, verses 11 through 15, we read of the ultimate false prophet of them all, which there is referred to as the second beast. And this second beast is going to lead the entire world to worship the first beast, which is not just a antichrist, it's the antichrist. See, all throughout the church history, Christians are facing antichrists. But one day, the antichrist will come upon the scene, and that will be an entirely different ballgame. Revelation 13, 11 through 5. I'd like to read these for us. John says this, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. Miraculous signs. And by the signs that it is allowed to work, like how that's phrased, 
that it is allowed to work. Who's giving, who's allowing this power to happen? It's God. Where was I? And by these signs, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth. There's our earth dweller terms from Sunday school last week. Telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Is that trying to copy a certain Christ we know? Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Not only will deception and perjury or false teaching, which that's what, that's what it is, it's perjury, okay? It's, it's rebellion against God. Not only will deception and perjury increase during the great tribulation, but so will lawlessness and lovelessness as verse 12 of Matthew 24 mentions. And the lawlessness, which is talking about those, not just, you know, breaking the speed limit, which don't do that. It's talking about those who are in direct opposition to the law of God. And as it, the scriptures tell us, it's going to be so bad that it's going to make the Grammys and the NFL halftime show look like the Brady Bunch. That's how bad, it's going to be awful. It's going to be atrociously bad. And as far as the love of many growing cold here, Revelation 6 once again sheds more light on that. Look at verses 3 and 4 here with me. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Yes, that's man's wrath, but who's initiating that? God. God is initiating every event that is happening throughout this tribulation. He's pulling back his grace and allowing humanity to be what humanity really is in the depths of our soul, which is completely depraved and opposed to God. Things are so bad here in Daniel's 70th week that Revelation in this passage tells us here that one-fourth of the earth is going to be dead by the time the fourth of the seventh seal is even commenced with. There's seven seals. This is the fourth one. And here, a fourth of the earth is dead by this time. And that's not even taking into account all judgments and all the bold judgments that are coming. This is not a party you want to be at, not to say the least, all right? And yet, well, in that day, religious deception, lawlessness, and lovelessness is going to increase exponentially. Christians of all eras must know that we will face this in some part which is why Paul warned us in Acts chapter 20 saying this, be careful, pay attention to yourselves and to the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Okay, that's talking about pastors. To care for the church of God with his own blood. Why? Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. Similarly, similarly, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And again, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, but, I understand, but understand this, in the last days, there will become times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen, 
seat of pleasure rather than lovers of God, habits of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. That is a perfect description of the day in which we live, is it not? One more, finally, Jude 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. It means they're not Christian. They're, they don't even have the spirit of God in them. And so regardless of what we find our being church, we all face the same threats to differing degrees. We all do. And if we don't, when these threats show up, it's going to disillusion us. Think about it. How many people do you know who have given up on the church entirely because they didn't expect any of this? They didn't expect there to be hardship within a church. They thought it was all going to be puppies and roses. And trust me, I get it. I really do. I completely understand the natural reaction and instinct to wanting to throw in the towel and say, forget this. If this, if this is how Christians are, I'll go deal with the world. But that is to respond wrongly. This to expecting no pain in the birthing process of the kingdom. And so we must manage our own expectations while keeping our hope not on the kingdom of this world, but on the kingdom which is coming. Because if we don't, we will not properly persevere in the face of tribulation. The kingdom is birthed by pain. It's birthed by persecution. It's birthed by three, and then finally by perseverance. Look at verses 13 through 14 with me, if you would, please. But the one who endures to be saved... And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In the midst of all this hardship and tribulation, we find a promise here that theologians really can't seem to agree on, and it's in verse 13 when it says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the reason that this verse is so challenging is because there's several possible ways to understand this, so I just want to cover three of them real fast. The first one some people take this to be saying that the one who endures enough will be rewarded with eternal life and salvation. And that we know right off the bat, right? That is not true. We are not saved by our works, one should boast. That's works-based salvation. That's heresy. It cannot be saved. Okay, so let's rule that one out right now. Second would be saying the person who endures through the great tribulation will be physically saved at the day of Christ's return, and they will enter then safely into the kingdom. And that, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. But the question is, is it true of this verse? Remember, in, remember math class? We use this illustration a lot. Even if you get the right answer, but you don't show your work right, you did it wrong. You still get marked off for it. Same thing with biblical exegesis, okay? Interpreting the Bible. So is it true of this verse? Is this Jesus's point here? Now, remember again, what is the 70th week about? It's about Israel. 
That is primarily what is happening here. God is using the events of Jacob's trouble of the 70th week that Daniel talks about to graft Israel back in. And you can write down and read this week, Romans chapter 11, which talks about how at the end of this seven-year tribulation, all of Israel that is left will be saved. They will believe, they will look upon Christ and they will finally say what we saw in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And on that day, they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will trust in Christ as their savior, upon which the reason for that is, that was a weird sentence. The reason for that is because what just happened, the guy they were trusting and proved himself to be antichrist. And that will be the catalyst among all the other events of the tribulation that will cause them to believe in Jesus, their Messiah. And Paul says, can you imagine that day? You know how great that day will be? Look how great it's been just because of Israel's unbelief for you Gentiles, for you non-Jewish people. What did we get? We got the church age. We got grace. The gospel came to us as primary recipients. And he says, with that being the case, with how much you were blessed because of Israel's unbelief, can you imagine your blessing you're going to receive when they believe, it's going to be out of this world, literally out of this world as the new kingdom ushers in. One third of the Jewish people will be saved as scripture, I believe, clearly explains that two thirds of them will die throughout this tribulation period. But one third of the people will believe and what a glorious day that will be. The third option here, perseveres will be saved both physically and spiritually. Okay be really careful. Don't fall into the, the trap of the first option, which is salvation. Let's throw that out right now. Okay. So we're not talking about that. When we say this third option, the one who perseveres will be saved both physically and spiritually. No salvation by works. Okay. Now, how does this work then? James tells us what? We are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. The cause of salvation is faith, but what is the effect of salvation? Faithfulness works, doing things in the power of the Spirit. So we could rightly say no fruit, salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, no fruit, no root, okay? The root is salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And the fruit of that is fruitful living, faithfulness. That is certainly true. If you were here with us through the book of James, you know what I'm talking about. That is James' point because faith without works is what? Dead, it's on life support. It's not in need of spiritual crutches. It's dead as a doornail. It's lifeless. And let's ground this just a little bit further. A couple other sides. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's not works-based salvation. Okay, it's the effect of salvation. Okay, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Their works didn't matter because they never knew the Savior, which is only possible by grace through faith. Matthew 10 33. This is a helpful passage that is a really, it's paralleling a lot of what you find in Matthew 24. But he says, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father who is in heaven. Remember what we said earlier about how advantages of persecution, persecution is that it separates the wheat from the tares? That's certainly true. And it's not because 
persevering through persecution saves us, it's because persevering through persecution reveals that we have been saved. It's a spotlight on it. it. It highlights it. It's a litmus test. It shows it. And for that, I would point you back to the parable of the four soils in Matthew 13. And how many of those soils produced regenerating, true, saving faith? Just one. Just one of them. The rest didn't. And in that parable, remember what Jesus said about the rocky soil, okay? That rocky soil represents persecution. The, it, the, the weeds come up and they choke out the seed. That's persecution. And Jesus explains that very clearly for us in that passage. And so even disagree which of those two points that are actually true, not the first one, that Jesus is actually making here, the reality is both are biblically true. They are both biblically true, okay? And the reality is Jesus might have had both in mind when he said this. We don't, I don't know. But the point is, remember what Jesus told us back in Matthew 10, verse 22? And you will be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He said the same thing back here, okay? Now, Matthew 24, 14, our passage here says the same thing, Okay. It says, he who endures in will be saved. And then in verse 14, it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's the effect of this enduring. As we know, this enduring involves faithfully proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Why does it call it the gospel of the kingdom? Is that different than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Ultimately, no different emphasis upon the same gospel. Remember what John the Baptist preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. That is a Jewish, primarily a Jewish message. Repent for the kingdom's here. The kingdom is being offered to you. And they said, eh, don't want the suffering servant. We want Rome out of here. We want the conquering king. We'll pass. Okay. And then the gospel, which we find in Matthew 28, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. That is now the fuller extent of that message in the time we live, which is the church age. And that's what we're doing. But in this tribulation period, remember, this is primarily about Israel. It's going back. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, your Messiah is coming. That certainly includes the gospel, but the focus is hyper-focused on the kingdom because the kingdom is at your doorstep, just like it was with John the Baptist, just like it was in Jesus's first coming. And so throughout this tribulation period, we see the full culmination of Matthew 28, the great commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and to make disciples happening. We see this with 144,000 witnesses. Okay, this is 144,000 unmarried Jewish males who are going to go out and they're basically going to be 144,000 Pauls, right? And they're unstoppable. You can't imprison them. You can't kill them. They're going to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We also see, and we don't have time for this, but we also see the two witnesses who are unkillable until finally allows them to, God allows them to be killed by Antichrist. And then what happens? He raises them up to life in front of the entire world as they're watching as a proof that God is with them. And then, I want to read this for us. I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyways. Revelation 14, 6 through 7, we read of the angel who is proclaiming to the entire world. And he says this. There we go. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead and with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to the earth dwellers, okay? 
to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Is that a You better believe it. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Notice in this passage here in Matthew 24, 14, what does it say? It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Why? As a testimony to the nations. What does that mean? Well, that is talking about how it will not just be a testimony for those who accept it and get saved. It's going to be a testimony on the day of judgment for all of the goats who rejected King Jesus. They're not going to be able to say, how oh, we didn't know. Somebody should have told us. It's like, no, you, you knew. You had, you had the 144,000 witnesses. You had the witness of the martyrs. You had the witness of the, of the two witnesses who died and were resurrected by God. And if that wasn't enough, you had the angel of God going about the earth, flying around, prepare God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. And you refused in your stubborn unbelief to accept Jesus as your king. It will make every mouth silenced on the day of judgment. And then what will happen? Then the end will come. The great commission will be finished. On the cross, Jesus said it is finished. But at this point, the great commission will be finished. The, the era of bringing the gospel to all the nations will be completed as we then go in to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We will all hang up our evangelist hats. We will just enjoy ruling and reigning with Christ. And the thousand-year millennium is just the, the appetizer to that. Oh, there's so much we could say about missions here now with so little time left. Is the Great Commission finished? No, no. The Great Tribulation hasn't even begun. We are currently, as the church, on mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Coventry, England, the lady I mentioned, she worked tirelessly trying to warn others of the coming wrath of the German army, of the coming bombing destruction which take people's lives forever. And yet as a church, we face a mission of infinitely greater importance. There are people around us marching to hell, marching straight for it. And yet how many Christians refuse to say a word, refuse to even let them know they're a Christian? It's a sad, sad ordeal. And yet let us not embrace that approach. Let us, as the people of God, remember that the kingdom is surely coming. And it is our mission to proclaim it to all so that they might partake with us in the glorious reign of King Jesus. And in that process, don't lose hope. Don't become disheartened and recognize that the birthing of the kingdom comes by pain. It comes by persecution. It comes by perjury of those who would claim to follow Christ and act follow and and finally it comes through the perseverance of the saints in all ages who faithfully proclaim the great commission which is Jesus he has died and he has resurrected and he is coming soon may this be our blessed hope and so we pray come quickly lord jesus father i thank you for this text a difficult text but a wonderful text 
And so, Father, I just pray that we would not uh, miss the glory of what is revealed here by focusing on tertiary matters, um, but recognize that persecution is promised for all. And so, Father, help us to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. Help us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Help us to be faithful witnesses so that one day when we stand before you, we will not shrink back. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Galatians 2.20, Paul declares, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you please stand and join with us as we sing our closing song.
and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can see. announcements here as we close out our worship service today. Uh, we're going to have a fellowship meal here together. If you didn't bring any food, doesn't matter. It's all going to, all the extras are going to go home with me. And that's only partly helpful. So join us for a wonderful fellowship meal. And I'd like to remind you during this time, it's not just a time to catch up on the weather, on the Vikings, which there's not much to catch up on there, but to have Christian fellowship, to have conversations, to stir one another up to love and good works as we see the day approaching. So join us for that. Uh, we'll get started with that just in a moment here. Uh, just a reminder, we are looking for a few people who are able to help out bringing a snack once every three months, I think is what it is. And we've really tried to simplify it down. So if you're interested in helping with that, let Dolly know. Seniors Ministry is continuing this Monday. All right, that's a wrong slide. So, our benediction today is John 16, verse 33. I've 
told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. May this be our hope as we face a world full of pain, perjury, persecution. Let us persevere for the sake of the gospel and our coming king. God bless. Let's eat. Oh, can you stop? We need to pray for the food. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day together. We just ask, Lord, you bless this food to our bodies. Bless our fellowship time together. Help us to live by these things. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.